Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. On this week's show, in the words of KRS-One, Educate yourself, make your worldview bigger, visualise wealth and put yourselves in the picture. Except, this is audio only, so there aren't any pictures. Hmm. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast. I'm Tiernan Duyeb, but my middle name is Samuel, which is almost a cruel joke because people can spell that bit, but no one ever, ever needs to. As I record this week's episode, it is a beautiful sunny day outside, which I assume means George Osborne is out somewhere fixing a roof. However, unlike George Osborne, this show contains absolutely no cuts at all. Instead, we've got a little bit of with or without EU, we have some thoughts on the Snoopers Charter, and there's a really, really fascinating interview with Alison Ryan from the Associated Teachers and Lecturers Union. But also... There is a new section. Ooh, I know, exciting. Now, this new section is a little bit of an experiment, but basically I spend a lot of time feeling hugely angry about things that are or aren't happening in this country and the world due to government policies and cuts. And one of the reasons I started this podcast and that I shout about politics in my material on stage is as a sort of way to vent it so that I don't just explode during an episode of Question Time instead. No, Julia Hartley Brewer, bombing people doesn't help those people unless you mean by some sick idea that it saves them having to travel anywhere if they're already dead. Oh God, every week, every single week. So I also know that people aren't able to go to protest or marching all the time or more often don't really want to protest or march all the time and aren't incentivised to. So what I thought is there must be a slightly more fun way to be active about doing all these things. And at the end of today's podcast, I'm bringing you a new section and I thought we could see if we could lightly ruffle some political feathers by merely having fun with the um, Westminster duck. I'm not really sure what that analogy means, but I bet the Westminster duck's pond was paid for by expenses. Hopefully you'll all get on board with it and in a couple of weeks we'll have fixed everything and I can finally finish the new series of House of Cards where the characters are so horrible and yet still seem like better US presidential candidates than the ones running at the moment. 
Anyway, let me know what you think about the news section and what you think about all other things on this podcast. Uh, I've had some lovely feedback from you over the last week, including stop interrupting the interview guests, which I have taken note of. Although, does that also mean I can't ask them questions either or interrupt at all? Should I just let them talk for out? Shall I? Shall I just go? Otherwise, it's all been very, very nice. Um, Also, very, very sorry about last week's episode being even later than I thought I was going to be. I remember Nigel Farage once blamed immigrants for traffic on the M4 because he's that sort of moron. But in that kind of vein, I'd like to blame last week's episode being out late because of the man who I'd like to say paid off the internet to stop this sort of revolutionary podcast being made available to the masses. Uh, In reality, I messed something up and James, my webman, fixed it because he's an actual hero, even though you won't see him in any Marvel trailers anytime soon. Thankfully, it is all fixed now and I can stop shouting, Stop it, Tron, at my Wi-Fi hub, which is good. Also, as this is out on Tuesday and the budget happens on Wednesday, I am saving all budget chat for next week's show. Excited? No, neither am I. So, this week... Junior doctors went on strike again this week for 48 hours this time after there is still no budging on their proposed contract changes. Jeremy Hunt, of course, didn't comment at all on the first day of the strike because he was hosting an international patient safety forum. How incredibly ironic, because really the only way for Jeremy Hunt to increase patient safety would be for him to wear a massive target, stand still and wait. The proposed junior doctor contract is now going to be challenged in court after a group of doctors have asked solicitors to investigate judicial review proceedings. These doctors are crowdfunding the costs via crowdjustice.co.uk, so do send them a few quid if you can. Not least because I'd love to see Jeremy Hunt try and worm his way out of making a statement if it means his non-appearance would mean he'd be in contempt of court. I mean, imagine that. It won't happen, but if Hunt was arrested and sent to prison, how lovely would it be to know he's having to be pretty patient seven days a week, even on weekends. Not content with Jeremy Hunt trying to be the biggest, most deluded MP of the week, Ian Duncan Smith has claimed that 75% of people who've had their benefits stopped have thanked him for it. There is, of course, absolutely no statistics to back this claim up, and so it's probably, quite likely, completely rubbish. Especially in a week where ESA cuts have also been made. I have a feeling, Ian, that I don't think any of those people were saying thank you. I mean, close, sounded quite similar, but I'm pretty sure not at all the same sentiment. Tim Farron has told the Lib Dems at their spring conference that they must return to their roots, which, considering how buried they got at the last election, can't be that far for them to go. Former Mayor of London and current least favourite person you want to get stuck talking to at a party, Ken Livingstone, has proved why, once again, he's the only politician we wish would actually be less honest. Ken said that a hedge fund manager donating 16 grand to MP Dan Jarvis was like Jimmy Savile donating to a children's group. And those are very unfair comments, because while hedge fund managers do, in some ways, screw with a lot of people unnecessarily, it's really not the same level of evil. Ken Livingstone has refused to apologise over these comments, saying that getting hedge fund donations is not labour, even though he got eight grand from a Bermuda-based hedge fund back in 2008. Which, on the plus side, also means that Ken is not Labour anymore, which would solve an awful lot of problems. 
as really having Ken Livingstone in the Labour Party is like having any 1970s BBC presenter at an eight-year-old's birthday. Nobody knows why they're there, nobody will own up to having invited them in the first place, everyone feels quite uncomfortable and worried that it could all go wrong at any moment but doesn't quite know how to make them leave. John Whittingdale is the Culture Secretary. In more ways than one, really, if you also remember that culture can mean a big pile of mould that attaches itself to its host while making it constantly less appealing. Whittingdale's plans for reforming the BBC Trust seem to be to replace it with a board where the majority of the members are selected by the government. Which is a strange choice, isn't it? Considering the only time that MPs seem to know anything about programming is when they have to reboot George Osborne. Previously, John Whittingdale has said that the BBC needs to be more distinctive in its output and I suppose with MPs in control of its board, it could be. I mean, for example, operating under political standards, BBC GCSE Bite Size could stop helping kids answer any questions at all and instead just give them ways to completely divert the subject matter. They could put on a brand new sitcom that involves blaming absolutely everyone on it for everything and call it Mr Brown's Boys. And they could get Jeremy Hunt to host a Saturday night TV show where he pays absolutely no attention to those in the medical profession and call it Doctor Who. You know what they say, if you can't teach, then, well, it's probably due to the education system being in a state of crisis. Teachers are arguably some of the most important people in the country. Well, not arguably. I mean, they are. Look, see, I'm even arguing with myself about it. So that's arguably right, right? Oh, look, what would I know? Idiot. If teachers don't teach, children don't learn, and we end up with generations and generations of people who have the sort of intelligence levels that mean that they argue with themselves on a podcast. I mean, without teachers, where would we be? Well, probably nowhere, as geography is a key part of the curriculum. As with many other public sector jobs, there is currently a teacher staffing crisis. A couple of weeks ago, Jeremy Corbyn questioned David Cameron on this at Prime Minister's Questions. But as usual, Dave just answered with, No, what? Everything's fine. God, you're so annoying. Why won't you just go away? I mean, I'm paraphrasing. But the fact is, a lot of money is currently being spent on agency staff as not enough people want to teach children. And who'd blame them, right? I mean, people are really annoying and children are just smaller people. So it's annoying condensed, yeah? Oh, sorry, but that's not the point. The point is, people want to teach and are passionate about teaching, but pay, conditions and pressures on teachers are making it much less fun than watching Greg Wallace deliver a lecture on polystyrene and how many ways he can balance some on his knee. So this week, to explain it all, I spoke to Alison Ryan at the Association of Teachers and Lecturers Union, who was able to educate me perfectly as to exactly what's going on. The National Audit Office very recently said that the government has missed teacher recruiting targets for about four years now. Why yeah. do you think it's so hard to attract people into teaching nowadays? Um, I think there's a range of reasons. Um, for a start, for new graduate graduates, um, it's to be honest, the pay, even though it's not the prime motivator we know for teachers going into teaching, um, pay at, uh, in teaching has gone down in comparison to private sector and also, in fact, in comparison to other public sector professions. Um, and when we kind of think that our graduates now have 
you know, increasingly high debts from their fees. Um, and that kind of demographic are also facing kind of uh, the biggest kind of impact, if you like, of the housing crisis in terms of getting on the property ladder or even affording rent as rents are going up. Um, that despite many wanting to enter a profession to make a difference and to, you know, to work with children and young people, to be honest, uh, they're just having to be more pragmatic. So money is part of the reason, I think, that we're, we're not attracting uh, people in. Um, and it was very interesting and, and quite kind of shocking that last year um, there was a report in autumn that in 2014 over 50,000 teachers had applied for a payday loan, while in 2011 wow. fewer than 5,000 had. So that's, that kind of says that although it's not the prime reason that people come in, actually it's a good reason for people starting to think, well, practically I don't know if I can afford to do it. Sure, that's uh, that's shocking figures. That's really upsetting. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's... It... One of those things as well where I suppose it's not only is if they've lowered pay, which is, is awful enough and hard to survive in, in current, you know, with cost of living going up. Um, yeah. But it's, it's quite long hours as well to do for lower pay, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, I mean, we know that the biggest reason that people are talking of leaving the profession is workload. Um, and it's gotten, you know, it's always been a hardworking profession. It's always been over the kind of hours that... That, that most people that will be on paper if you like but we know that increasingly people are having to work long into the evenings they're having to work weekends they're losing time with family and friends they're losing time to just do anything else to take a breath and they're exhausted to be honest um and the problem is it's not even work that kind of links back to their motivation for joining it's often not work that makes a massive difference to the learning of children and young people they don't feel it's making the difference um, it's often kind of a lot of reporting busy work stuff they need for performance management, stuff they need for Ofsted. And really, you know, that kind of thing is soul destroying. So that's having a huge impact. It's, it's you know, we're losing basically 10% of those who go on courses are leaving before they get uh, qualified teacher status, before they qualify. Then another 10% having gained a qualification are just not entering, at least not entering the maintained sector that we know of. So before you even start from those that get on the courses and we, we know they're under recruiting, actually 20% will never enter the profession, at least not in the maintained sector anyway. So when you add all that together, you know, and then we know that we're losing more and more teachers before uh, pension age, you know, it, it is, it's, it's a critical levels. Because there's certain areas as well that I read that schools are struggling to hire teachers in particular. Mm-hmm. They've said sort of math, science and English are the main three. Is, is there a particular yeah. reason why it's those subjects? Well, that's an interesting. I think that's a really good question. And I wish that was a question that the DfE <laughs> were asking. And I think they will, although they have spent the last few months denying that we're in a crisis. Um, you know, Nick Gibb has, has been desperate to avoid that word. Um, but actually, I think they're beginning the mood music and too many voices are saying actually it is critical. So we need to have that question asked. You know, why particular subjects? Uh, math, science, particularly physics, um, are, are having a massive problem in recruiting, partly because they're, they're recruiting from a narrower pool of graduates for a start. So yeah. there are less graduates coming out with those degrees. So, you know, you, you, you're recruiting from, from a narrower pool. You're also, um, you know, particularly in those areas, you're having, uh, you know, greater salaries in other areas, particularly around maths and science. So people are, are going into that. So competition-wise, uh, it isn't. And for those, I was recently reading... Um, an article from a young science uh, teacher, and he be- basically was saying, 
really it's not just the levels of workload but it's so monotonous it's 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 kind of so much about report writing and that side of things that they were leaving so i think that's why it's so hard to recruit english is a more interesting one because it doesn't feel as automatically understandable which is why i think we have to ask those questions and really find out why people with those degrees look at teaching and think you know what it's not for me because we've got to find the right solutions i mean um the DSE and uh, the National College for Teaching and Leadership relying on things like bursaries, for example, in, in maths and science is, you know, and, and for those with the highest degrees, is really not particularly, I think, meeting the needs they want it to. For a start, we don't know that those with the highest degrees are necessarily the best teachers, so that, that seems to be a little bit of, a, of an issue. The other thing is the bursaries often involve, you know, the top bursaries, 30,000 tax-free, for for someone doing their their training, which is the equivalent of a take home salary of forty thousand, then no school can really afford to offer an opening salary of that. So, um, so they then have not to working. take a drop if they once uh, they start teaching. To, right. Exactly, they'd have to take a drop. So we need them to look at other things. I mean, one of the things that ATL would like them to look into to kind of. Uh, not only bring people in, but also to retain them, is the idea that you, you kind of on a proportional level, pay a proportion of student of the student loan, repay it every year. So that if somebody stays in five years or four years, they'll obviously have a lot more of their student loan repaid than if they stay in one. So, and yet, you know, we know that student loans are crippling. So reducing that is, is, is a really meaningful thing for our graduates, but also it, it talks to retention as much as it does to recruitment. Yeah, absolutely. Give them some sort of incentive to stay in if they know they're going to end up with much less debt uh, and therefore exactly. it's more, more worthwhile that the money they're getting will go towards better things. Sure, that makes perfect sense. Because one of the recent suggestions, I think it was that the head of policy exchange suggested the other week, was the idea of flexible working hours. But yeah. I mean, OK, and obviously I don't understand how the teaching day works, but wouldn't that be quite difficult with a kind of standardized school day and then with all the extra work on top anyway how would flexible absolutely hours work? I totally agree i think it is going to be very difficult and it's not even just about teachers on the standard school day but parents you know often fit their working day around the school day and then fill in the rest with childcare. so it would have huge implications outside of school as well um and, you know, we do encourage the idea that schools to be open to flexible working possibilities, but it is difficult around not only parents, but, but teachers' childcare arrangements. Um, and we need to address, you know, the additional work outside of the normal working day. As you said, you know, when you're talking about flexible working, you're also talking about the work that people do in the evenings. And one thing I'm very worried about is I increasingly hear from teachers who say, I've gone down to a four-day week. Uh, so they're paid for four days, but it's almost that they're doing they're, they're doing five days worth of work, if you like. Sure. Um, they're using the their fifth day very often to kind of prom- to, to support their teaching. So really, they're working five days, but with four kind of employed days, and that's really not you know that that's not economically viable for an awful lot of people. Nor necessarily is it kind of really what we should be aiming for. But you know we sh- we should explore all options, but we also should be very clear on the needs when we are exploring those options. Yeah, I mean, I was I was going to say that. Uh... Okay, the, the the stereotype that people have of teachers, and that is something I've heard, you know, comedians, fellow comedians say of kind of, oh, but you get very long holidays uh, and those kind of jokes or, you know, or the idea that we had as a kid that teachers leave at 3.30 like everyone else. But I, I mean, 
as you said earlier, they're often working quite late into nights, so that the the six week holiday is probably desperately needed, isn't it? In, but when they get absolutely, to it. And, and and to be honest, very often, you know, the the the, the first. The last couple of weeks of those six-week holidays in summer is often almost kind of preparing materials for going in and starting to teach in September. So, you know, people look at those holidays and they don't really realise the level of work that's going on. As as both someone who works with teachers and uh, come from a family of teachers, I know about how much both holiday weekends and evening time is work. Now, some of that is interesting and some teachers are happy to do, but it's a level, it's, it's almost a relentless nature of it, of what it's spent on. It's just, you know, it's actually having massive impact on things like stress, mental health, physical health, all those side of things. So, um, you know, when people, people will keep coming back to the holiday uh, issue, but actually it's not, it's, it's not about that. It's, it's the work the rest of the time. And actually, even underneath that holiday figure, there's a lot of work going on very often. What sort of work? You're saying that some of the work is what they find interesting, and you mentioned earlier a lot of stuff is admin. What What's the need for all the admin? Why is is that? That's all to do with Ofsted, is it? It's very accountability driven. It's partly Ofsted, and to be fair to Ofsted, they have a myth busting document, which I'd urge any any listeners who are in education if they don't know about it, they can easily Google it and find out. Um, actually, Ofsted have now said they don't want to to see the levels of kind of evidence. That, that head teachers thought they originally did. However, that message is taking a long time to get through. And the problem is, even their reports, their school, even their most recent school reports, will mention things about evidence and will kind of, you know, applaud a school for providing this kind of evidence and, and, and that kind of thing, which in a way is telling others who are looking at a successful report, ah, that's what we need to have a successful Ofsted. So in a way... Their, 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 not, their own practice hasn't quite kind of caught up. Um, but at the same time, heads really, I think they've lost so much confidence and they're so underneath the workload burden that some heads are not really kind of catching up in terms of now what they, you know, the levels of evidence that really are, are not now required. There's also performance management. We have a really, and I think the way it's being implemented at schools at the moment, performance-related uh, pay and performance management system has been quite negative in, in a lot of schools. It's, it's promoted a lot of competition, a lot of feeling that asking for CPD or admitting you kind of have a particular need around development, sorry, CPD is continuing professional development, right, okay. but admitting you have a development need is almost seen as a weakness and therefore you can't admit it, which is such a shame. And you know, a mad thing in something like education, which is all about learning and development and stretching yourself sure. uh, and that side of things. So uh, really, it, it, it's about the kind of reporting that either is needed for performance management or the kind of report, reporting that people think is needed for Ofsted. It's driving an awful lot. I mean, we hear about double marking. We hear about people having feeling they have to comment on pupils' work to the extent that sometimes the comment is longer than the piece of work itself, you know, and God. that's just not, it's not the right balance. It's, 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 it's not, it's not working the way it should be. Okay, there, there was a teacher I spoke to uh, very recently who was uh, saying to me that it's become very focused on tests and the results from tests and that sort of, they felt that that was hindering their ability to actually teach children properly <laughs> and really engage in subjects because it was all directed towards just answering these tests correctly. Is that, is that a problem? Absolutely. Uh, we know that 
the, the, the kind of testing at the moment is narrowing the curriculum and it's narrowing teaching. Um, there's such huge pressure in things through things like performance tables, through things like the data that school have to, to use to uh, obviously maximize results on tests. And a lot of these are, you know, they're not about teaching tools to kind of assess where people are and, and to, to then decide, you know, where the weaknesses are and where they need to be developed. That We have absolutely no problem with that. But we have such a pressure of external testing on the curriculum. I mean, there's quite a shocking thing that by age of 11, children will have had five formal assessments, four of those by the age of seven. And then wow. you contrast that with the rest of Europe, which, you know, you'll have many children that don't start school until seven years old, you know, and, and those still end up doing very well on all the kind of comparative measures, uh, whether, you know, by the OECD and the PISA tests and all those sort of things. We know that those countries are not doing worse than us, and yet they're managing to find a way of curriculum and testing, which is far more about based on, on supportive teaching and learning and less about kind of a very excessive accountability. So, you know, it's, it's very high stakes. And we go, you know, it, it's getting worse. We know that next year, children that fail to reach the expected standard in year six, you know, in their SATs, will have to retake those in secondary school. I mean, oh, wow. you, you know, that's, it, it, it's ridiculous, to be quite honest. That's such a lot. I mean, because I think back to uh, when I was at school years ago, <laughs> I, I didn't do anywhere near that number of tests, I think, until sort of GCSE level. And the amount of yeah. pressure a test is on a child anyway uh, if Absolutely. you have to go through that at a young age, that feels, uh, you can imagine children getting quite stressed. It's, yeah, uh, I mean, I'm the mother of a 12-year-old, for... and I know that many of our, our teachers are not only seeing it in their own pupils, but in their own children who are, you know, potentially going through that. And it's awful to see that pressure on, on children and young people. You know, I mean, I have to regularly tell my son, as I imagine our teachers tell their, their pupils, where they can is to say look use it as a thing to learn from don't use it as a thing to think it's it says everything about you you know whatever grade you get and yet because there's such a huge emphasis on targets you know actually in the end they listen to that message children hear that message far more than they hear potentially the other positive messages and that's really you know it's it's too damaging for our children and young people Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's also, I mean, uh, probably a bad analogy, but I always think of the driving test where I learned how to pass my driving test. And I don't think I've ever driven like that since <laughs> it was it was useful to <laughs> pass the test and then not really useful for actually getting anywhere afterwards. Yeah. Um, I should yeah. say I'm quite a good driver. Um, <laughs> ish, ish. Not much road rage, just a little. Um, so uh, another another issue with, uh, I suppose, teaching kids that I, I've heard teachers sort of worry about is that the classes now seem to be regularly have over 30 kids, especially in primary schools. I think uh, the figure I found said over half a million primary schools have classes of over 31 pupils uh, and there's yep. 40,000 that have over 36. So, I mean, uh, you know, presumably the population is going to keep growing. More and more children are going to keep appearing. Uh, how are schools going to be able to provide places for all of them? So with great difficulty, I think, and a lot of schools face really difficult choices. You know, they they have options like building temporary classrooms on the playground, or converting things like their library space, their music room, dining halls into classrooms. All of which then cuts down, you know, the values of those uh, spaces in schools, or they continue to struggle along with large classes. Now we do know that large classes don't necessarily have a huge impact on children and uh, and young people in terms of their learning, although it depends obviously a lot on a lot of other contextual issues. But it, it's a huge impact on teacher workload. You know, if you're having to manage 
far more children with, who will have a range of needs. And, you, you know, this is all in a context where we know that around, say, for example, the, uh, the special educational needs reforms of the last few years mean that there's a lot less external support for children with special educational needs. Um, and some of the categories that used to bring in extra resources, uh, like School Action and School Action Plus, have been removed, if you like. Um, there's a lot more kind of onus on the classroom teacher to be able to identify and meet special education needs within the classroom, um, alongside, of course, just a range of other just diverse kind of interests and needs of, of wider groups of pupils. So that the bigger you have, the bigger classrooms are, the bigger classes are, um, the more those kind of issues will come to fore. Unless you start looking into kind of a lot more team teaching so that you have a team of teachers or of education staff within any one room. But then that obviously has budgetary implications as well. Sure, and with the teacher shortage at the moment, that's going to be a bigger problem exactly. to cater Absolutely. for as well. We will return to that excellent chat with Alison after this very quick... With or without you With or without you Tony Blair has said that he would be toxic to the EU Remain campaign. So it's really nice to know that he can finally recognise his own strengths. Meanwhile, US President Barack Obama is also backing Britain staying in the EU. And Boris Johnson said that this is outrageous and exorbitant hypocrisy, which caused a mass resignation of most pots and kettles all around the UK. And the Queen also backs Brexit, according to a scoop in The Sun, a paper that would have more factual content if it printed each article only in wingdings. According to the glorified Lou Roll, the Queen had a bust-up with Nick Clegg back in 2011 and expressed her dislike of the EU. So that's clearly nonsense, as why would anyone have bothered wasting energy talking to Nick Clegg? Buckingham Palace has filed a complaint with the press watchdog against the claims. Though, I suppose there is a slight chance that they aren't nonsense and that these claims could actually be right. I mean, I've heard the Queen mention one, or we, but never EU. Yeah, I, I went there. I'm sorry, everyone. Lastly, I spent some time reading a report by the Institute for European Environmental Policy on the environmental implications of a Brexit, because I've got a really, really fantastic social life. It's an interesting read, this report, anyway, and you can find it on their website at ieep.eu. There are many, many variations about what could happen depending on the deal the UK would get if we left. But suffice to say, a straight-up Brexit with no connections to the EEC could be really disastrous, especially based on our government's current attitude towards renewable energy. Though, I suppose if our air becomes completely non-breathable, that'll dissuade a load of migrants from coming over. Hey, guys? Guys? (coughs) I've never been a fan of the phrase, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear. Mainly because it is rubbish. I mean, I have absolutely nothing to hide, and yet I'm still hugely scared of spiders, sharks, spider sharks, and an impending zombie apocalypse. This week, the investigatory powers bill is getting its second reading. And chances are, you're listening to this after it's already happened, because it happened on Tuesday afternoon, this came out Tuesday morning. You might well be listening on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday like a maverick. 
and hopefully it's all been blocked by a surprise Tory rebellion and you can just skip this bit completely safe in the knowledge that Theresa May isn't staring at you right now via your webcam and deciding that because you own a pair of scissors, a backpack and a 1995 CD single of the Buckethead song The Bomb that you could be a terrorist. Or more likely as Andy Burnham has announced that Labour are abstaining from the vote it's probably all been passed through despite the complete vagueness of its content. The IP bill, or Snoopers Charter as it's also known, which I always think makes it sound a bit like a Snoop Dogg track about how he logs his voyeuristic prowls. And I bet he's, he's, he's already done a track like that, hasn't he? Yeah, I bet he is. I bet. The IP bill, or Snoopers Charter, will allow governments to force companies to bypass the security of their own products and devices in order to check all the communications of their users. So if needs be, they can look into everything you've been doing on all of your devices, making your MacBook, iPad and iPhone combo seem just like a tiny family of double agents. I mean, you once gave them a home, but now they've betrayed you. Security services are going to keep a record of everyone's website history for up to 12 months, whether you're under suspicion or not. So even more people will know about your shameful late-night drunken Amazon purchases of Dan Brown books. And while all of that information will require what they're calling a double lock warrant that has to be signed by a Secretary of State and a judge, the judicial oversight can be completely bypassed in urgent cases, presumably like having to urgently stop someone late night buying too many Dan Brown books. And this is all part of Theresa May's clampdown on extremist ideology. But considering that they'll be monitoring everyone's website use, suspicious or not, and this policy will allow them to bypass the need for judiciary service, you start to wonder if this bill might be horribly abused. The UK would become the only country in the Five Eyes Alliance that doesn't vest any power in surveillance in the legal system. Uh, the Five Eyes Alliance does sound like some sort of creepy starfish club, and yeah, starfishes do have five eyes, I googled that, and now that Google search may now, by the time you hear this, be being watched by everyone at the Home Office who thinks I'm planning some sort of underwater coup. Actually though, the Five Eyes Alliance is an intelligence group that includes Australia, New Zealand, the US and Canada, and it was set up to monitor the Eastern Bloc and Soviet Union in the Cold War. And where's Wally Champion 2013, Edward Snowden said of the Five Eyes Alliance that it doesn't answer to the known laws of its own countries. So this group, that are essentially the real-life Spectre or Hydra, still use judges to approve operations, but we in the UK won't if the IP bill is passed. So a judge won't need to approve, and if your information is being looked into, you won't know and won't be able to appeal. It's that sort of thing that would make George Orwell characters feel like they had it easy. On top of this, critics are saying that another one of the bill's flaws are its vague content about end-to-end -end encryption having to have a backdoor so security services can access all data. Now, once you've stopped laughing about everything having to open its backdoor, think about the fact that really, due to hackers, information isn't safe when it has a front door or windows or one of those little paths down the side of the house that leads to the garden. It's essentially like all information is constantly living in Dagenham. It's always under threat. And things are encrypted to make them safe. And sure, that might mean that there is occasionally info hidden away that for the safety of others needs to be exposed. But it does also mean that if there's a backdoor, hee hee hee, hackers will probably find it easier to get into everyone's stuff. I mean, it is almost as if Theresa May has never ever seen Mr. Robot. Although, to be fair, if you've got an Amazon Prime account, she'll probably use your login to watch it very, very soon. 
So it's a really, really scary sounding bill. And worryingly, Labour are abstaining the vote, as Shadow Home Secretary Andy Berman said he just wants to work constructively with the government on the bill. You know, like helping them to come up with department names like the Thought Police, probably. It's a very odd tactic and you start to wonder what he's been looking online for recently to have such an opinion. Hopefully there'll be more amendments to it which will stop the government just making a crap remake of Minority Report for the near future. But if not, we really need to set up a website ASAP called soddoffyoknowsybastards.com and ensure that everyone clicks it 500 times a day until Theresa May gets the message. Either that or we can hope that part of Theresa May's clampdown on extremist ideology means that she arrests herself sometime very, very soon. And now, part two of my interview with Alison Ryan at ATL. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I try at the end of all my interviews, you've probably noticed this, to ask a sort of fun question because otherwise, let's face it, I'm just discussing with someone for half an hour how very, very bleak the reality of everything is. Um, and, and with this interview, I struggled for ages trying to think of a good final funny question to do with teaching that wasn't a bit cheesy or boring. Uh, but eventually I decided I'd just ask Alison if she had a favourite teacher, thinking that maybe I'd edit it out if it didn't quite fit. And then Alison gave an amazing answer to that question, so I'm very pleased I did. Anyway, before she gives that answer, here is some more bleak reality. Quite a lot of money is being spent on uh, on agency staff at the moment. I yeah. mean, and and I sort of see, I can see both sides of that argument because I suppose if there is a teacher shortage, you need to teach children somehow, so you have to get yeah. staff from somewhere <laughs> to fill it. Yeah. Um, but is it? I mean really i guess that money could be used to drive more teachers into taking it permanently taking the job permanently absolutely i mean our you know as atl we very much encourage schools to employ teachers directly if it's if it's possible because of that will obviously cut out agency fees the teacher can contribute to their pension scheme so we do absolutely encourage that but the reality is of course that you know we have heads increasingly placing ads for for teacher vacancies that 
they end up getting little or no response to, sure. you know, um, and it's expensive enough, obviously, placing those ads. So a lot of schools are, are feeling like they have to resort to using agencies to get to fill permanent posts. But the problem is you can have, you know, you can have examples where schools have paid 20 or 25,000 in terms of agency fees and then that person because maybe there wasn't a great fit between that person and the school is gone a term and a half later oh, that's a wow. huge you know so now those are the worst stories but the, but they are a reality and they're one that i've seen groups of heads nod away when they've heard that kind of story so it obviously resonates a, a, across the, the sector really um you know in some ways it's not that agency staff shouldn't be used, but we prefer to see the cost of agency staff being used to kind of allow kind of shorter term time away for teachers around things like their CPD sure. uh, or to cover, you know, shorter term absences, whether relating to health or, or, you know, shorter term. But long term, really, it's a really expensive way to recruit. So we, you know, where possible, obviously schools are trying to avoid it, but um, agencies are often going into um are, are kind of, if you like, contacting courses and contacting NQTs and contacting students and encouraging them to, to, to get on their books, if you like. And of course, for a student or NQT, they, are, they have to make one application and then, you know, that will be taken forward to a number of schools rather than to make lots of different applications. So it's, you can see the temptation for, sure. for students and NQTs. But it's just as school budgets are getting increasingly squeezed. So I think there's a point where really agencies are going to be too expensive for schools to afford. But what on earth the other options are, you know, we, it's, it's why we desperately need government to really engage properly with this and to find out, you know, using evidence, find out, you know, how we can tackle this better. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the problems seem to come down to funding issues, I think, because I, I was going to ask why more schools aren't being built. But I mean, obviously, it's because there isn't the money to do it or the space. Um, and then there aren't the teachers to fill them. So it, it's a kind of uh, that is partly it. I mean, what, what is probably one of the most frustrating things is that we are opening free schools. You know, local right. authorities are now prevented by law from opening new schools based on local need. If they if they see local need, they have to go to the DfE to find a free school sponsor to open one, which of course adds you know it's it's rather inefficient to have to add in that extra step, and then they've got to look for a sponsor. It's costly and it's slow, and you know if if local need is 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 relatively urgent, you know and local authorities were in such a good place to really understand not only need but also to understand kind of the local area, what were the local transport routes, traffic flows what parking was like. So to know where things, you know, should be set, what the impact would be on the local environment, they were really in the in the best place. Um, you know, and we have free schools that have been built. You know, of those that are open now, only three quarters were in place of need and one quarter of those have a partial role of less than 70%. So, you know, the problem is we are spending money on building schools, but not necessarily where we need them. Right. And, and not really in necessarily the most effective way that will account for, you know, impact on, on the local area. So that's the problem where it's not just that we don't, I agree, there's an element of there's not enough money. But the problem is also that we're not spending it in the right way. That The money that there is, we're not spending in the right way. And, and are there problems with it being free schools as well, as opposed to state schools? Because I, I know there was information last year that said there was no real evidence that free schools are pushing up standards in their surrounding areas. 
Um, and it does seem to feel like, like David Cameron announced that they plan to open 300, 500 more free schools. Why is there yep. such a push towards those rather than normal comprehensive schools? Well, it does feel rather like an ideological push and almost one that comes away from central government. The idea of, you know, that, that feels like an ideological issue as opposed to um, really based on evidence. And, and, you know, absolutely, there is no evidence that it's driving up standards. Now, that's not to say there won't be free schools with as great practice. Of course there will. But there are also great maintained schools with as good practice. There's no evidence that the, that particular form of structure has a beneficial impact on standards. And of course, we know it kind of removes school from the local authority family. Um, so you have local authorities still having responsibility around things like uh, SEN, numbers of, you know, provision for SEND children, um, excluded pupils, and yet having little or no control over the admissions of academies and free schools. So, you know, it, it's not it's not logical, if you like, as a system, and it's not Oh, it's, it's often not working as well as it should. So, um, you know, we really, we need to almost appeal to people to go beyond their own particular uh, narrow interests. So, you know, we do know free schools are open to where community, say, to parent groups want them, um, rather than where the demand is. Um, there's also real doubts around the free schools involvement in the local area. Um, and we really need that. The best schools are ones which are absolutely linked to their local area, who work with other schools, who work with local community groups, you know, who understand almost where their pupils, the, the, the context that their, their pupils come from. Those are the schools that we know, you know, do the best and add the most value. Sure. And, and is it the same with, um, I don't know if it's the case with, with free schools, the same as academies. And I admit, I, I don't know enough about either of those two things. But if... They are they controlled by the, the the DfE in the same way that comprehensive schools are, or does that do they sort of operate under their own uh, curriculum? Uh, how does that work? Well, they, I mean, funding still is coming from the DfE. They still control the purse, if you like, um, but they're not. The levels of accountability are different. They there are things called. Um, regional school commissioners who look after them, but we at the moment still have only eight of those and um, they're, you know, it's, it's too, still too early days whether that kind of level of accountability and support is sufficient. Um, I think what's very difficult is where you have local authorities still, as I say, have responsibilities for all children and young people in the area and particular needs, but they don't have the powers anymore to kind of enforce the right kind of practices and maybe enforce isn't the right word but to support and kind of sure. ensure the right kind of practices so um that's i think a real issue academies and free schools will have more freedoms around curriculum uh which are often that's often kind of the big thing that's wanted by the dfe but at the same time we know that actually when you have the evac you know the uh e-baccalaureate which will emphasize on particular subjects when we have the kind of testing which they are you know, they have to be, they have to go through that as much as um, as any maintained school, then basically they really don't have as much freedom around the curriculum. They may not have to follow the national curriculum, but they still have to follow a curriculum that, that leads to those kind of exams and those kinds of tests. So, you know, this, the argument isn't strong for them. It's not that there can't be great practice in academies, but the idea that there should be a drive towards something without the evidence that it makes better value and that it's good value for money is mad in a system that now is kind of really needing, you know, is, is suffering from lack of funding. 
Yeah, I, I, it sort of reminds me of, I think it was Michael Gove who said a while ago where, that he wanted all schools to be better than to keep beating the average or being better than the average, which yes. fa- failing to understand that the average would keep moving up, you know, exactly. making that impossible. Um, yeah, which is brilliant. I'm glad he's not a math teacher. Um, and do you do you feel, and again, this is a concern that I'm sort of relaying from, from teachers that I know, um, some of them felt quite concerned that their schools that they work in were being railroaded into becoming academies. Uh, yeah. the, the local authorities kind of forcing their schools to turn into academies. Well, not forcing, but, you know, insisting. Uh, is, that, is that a problem as well? Well, it's not the local authority insisting. Um, basically, if a school is deemed to be coasting uh, through Ofsted, the local authority is unable to prevent the academisation of that school. Right, okay. Um, so they don't really have choices. And in terms of how the school will operate, that will very much, the amount of choice they have over that will very much depend on things like local issues or, or who the sponsor is. Um, so, you know, there, there will be some freedoms, but, you know, and if it ends up becoming part of a multi-academy trust, then it might well be that the sponsor, the kind of the central sponsor, will have far more impact rather than any individual head of, of a school that's part of that. So, no, there's, absolutely schools are very often being railroaded. The local authority can do little to stop it. It's not in the position to. As I say, even if a local authority wants to open a new school because it knows that there's a need for those school places, they cannot do that. They cannot set that up by themselves. They have to go to the DfE to look for a, a sponsor. So, you know, it, it, right. it's absolutely about local authorities, everyone, local communities, schools being railroaded. Right, and I presume if they go to the Department of Education looking for a certain sponsor, they might well be pushed towards particular sponsors uh, that they don't have a choice about going with. Absolutely. I mean, that, that choice will be the DfEs. It will be the Department for Education's choice about who the sponsor is and whether they meet the criteria, um, but all of which, of course, takes quite a bit of time. In the, you know, All of which is time that the school is not even being built. The site hasn't been necessarily chosen. Right. All of those sites, of, all those kind of issues... So it's really, it's it's not a system that I think is working particularly well, and particularly when we know that there are free schools set up in areas where there isn't need. That's just, it's, it's just, it's it's a mad kind of system. So this is all very worrying stuff. I mean, as a, a sort of conclusion. Um... Because, again, on this podcast, I often speak to people saying what is actually going on and we get to the end and go, oh, this all sounds quite bleak. (laughs) So is there anything that that concerned parents and people listening and people that would like to become a teacher in the future can do to kind of highlight these issues or help out? What, What should people be doing? Often it's about thinking of one step. One of our things in our workload campaign was to get people, because it feels so, where do we start, it's so big, Mm. is to think of one thing. One thing that could reduce it slightly. You know, you have to start the journey somewhere. Um, I think we've got to, as a profession, as kind of stakeholders around, as groups of parents, we need to start shouting more and more for anything that's, for any kind of approaches that are coming out to say, you know, what are we going to do to try this out? Is it going to be piloted properly? You know, are we going to then give time? You know, or, or always is it about getting the legislation through in a matter of a year or two years? Actually, can we, you know, we need to slow down. And that, that's, I think, the message we need to get through. We need to resist the move to ever-increasing testing. And I think parents can play a huge role in this. Um, you know, parents, unions teachers themselves in schools 
how can we resist that huge move towards more and more testing? I, I know as a parent that the majority of parents are not happy with this. There's a feeling of going, where do we start? So it's about coming together and we work with parent groups to kind of see about particular campaigns or particular kind of ways we can, we can kind of raise awareness of issues and maybe change some practice out there. We need to collaborate together. You know, we've really got to do that. And we've all got to look slightly beyond our narrow interests. So I know that for our members, if I'm making an argument about reducing workload, I have to make sure that parents understand that's not about teachers taking it easy. That's not about their children missing out because workload is lessened. It's actually about making sure they understand that's also about meeting their needs. You know, coming back to, you know, trying not to be bleak, it's a fantastic profession. It's wonderfully creative. Yeah. It's very exciting for those who do it very often. It can make a difference. It can be incredibly rewarding. One of our NQs talks about that light bulb moment where you see it going off for that child, that piece when they just when they get it. And, you know, it's still full of all those things. We just need to make sure there's enough space for those. And that's what we're trying to do. It's not about teaching is a great profession, but it needs to kind of, it need, we need to make time for the good stuff. We need to give it the right kind of respect. We need to make it accountable, but not excessively so. You know, we need to have some trust while some kind of support and kind of challenge. That's what it's got to be like. And we've got to kind of have everything kind of working together for that to happen. But it's just about chipping away, I think. <laughs> it's like you say, it sort of amazes me. You know, we've got it with junior doctors at the moment where people, uh, you know, where, where they're being ignored when actually they're people that we really need to understand. We, we don't want doctors tired and exhausted yes, and not absolutely. wanting to work. And similarly, teachers, everybody I know has had a, a favourite teacher in the past or a teacher that's made a difference to them. Um, everybody I know has had something that happened to them at school change their life, you know, usually due to a teacher yep. that really cared or did something different and so you don't want you don't want teachers to not wanting to be do their job to be doing their job you know that will be negative for everyone uh, everyone involved absolutely um on that note, as as a final let's uh, as a final non bleak note, uh, I was just going to ask you. I I had several favourite teachers when I was younger. Um, one that springs to mind is Mr Gilman, who taught English uh, in secondary school. Who every time we did Chaucer uh, and the class lost interest, he would explain to us quite clearly uh, what a Chaucerian swear word meant in modern day language, and that would make <laughs> us all pay attention immediately. I don't think I've ever learnt so much in my life. Um, yeah, I just wondered if you had any particular favourites from your school days. Um, I had a wonderful history teacher, Mr. Moxham, who lived on the school grounds and just, he he was a wonderful favourite. And to be fair, you know, he was also seriously cool because he'd once managed you too, who started in oh, my wow. school. Um, so, you know, he, he had his street cred as well. He wasn't, he wasn't those teachers who dressed cool, but he just, you know, he just was a wonderfully warm and kind of, uh, kind and, and challenging teacher. You know, we would... In class, we'd uh, occasionally, because we were all loving it and all quite relaxed, sometimes, you know, you could see a boundary would be crossed and he'd be very clear. Then the, the odd shout would come out. Not, not in a, You never felt threatened, but you thought, OK, cross that line. But uh, I, I still remember doing one of my mock exams. And w- again, we didn't get test. I didn't have external testing until I was 15. This is in Dublin. Right. But f- one of my mock leaving certificate exams, I, I came into the room and uh, he had got an external assessor in. And he just said to her as I walked in the room, well, there you go. There's our pub historian, because I've done very little work from my mock history. And it really stayed with me. I thought, OK, 
he said, yeah, you, you, you got a, an OK grade, but really, if you'd actually done any work, you'd have done so much better. <laughs> and ever since then, when I realise I'm trying to blag it, I go, I, I flash back to that pop historian comment, and I go, OK, I need to actually find out the facts. I need to know my stuff and not be a pop historian. So he's brilliant. And I just remember him as just, he was, you know, we, the whole class, we all laughed. You know, everyone was engaged. It was it was brilliant. That's he was fantastic. just one of those people you'll always remember. Yeah, and I assume you always had it in your back of your head going, he could still be helping you too right now, but he's come to teach us. We'd better respect this. You know, that's, a, that's an incredible thing to have. Yeah, he turned that lifestyle down for you guys. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Thanks so much to Alison Ryan for that interview. It was brilliant talking to her, and I felt she really helped me to understand exactly what sort of crisis the education sector is in right now. I, I can completely understand why people aren't happy in the teaching world. Uh, if, if you are a parent or you are interested in becoming a teacher or you're just a caring human being with empathy, you know, those sort of rarities that exist, uh, then do check out the ATL Union. Uh, they are at ATL Union on Twitter and particularly on their website, they have a current About Time campaign, which you can find at www.atl.org.uk forward slash About Time. And on there, they have a very, very thorough workload tracker for any of you that are in teaching jobs that might need help. Again, thanks to all the listeners for recommending speaking to ATL and I've had several other good suggestions uh, from listeners of people to contact for this show for interviews, which is brilliant. But please, please, please do keep those suggestions coming in. Even if you just wish to suggest yourself. I mean, I would. You're great and I love how you wear your face. So yeah, look, do do that. And if you have any ideas, it would be great to be almost organised for once. So please email us at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com, via Twitter at parpolbro, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash parpolbro. So, here's the new bit, right? There's quite a few of you listening to this show now, and I thought, why not stop faffing about with just complaining about everything like an armchair activist, which... I should say, is a term that I don't see too much wrong with, as I will happily complain and protest if furniture isn't comfy enough to watch a whole box set from. But look, instead of being an armchair activist or whatever, I thought, why not try and help out where we can, with all the people listening to this? So here is a new section that I like to call... It's the Partly Big Society. Partly Big Society. That's the new section, where I thought that using this podcast, we could make a little attempt to make some very small changes. Now, this idea has mostly come this week from talking to Catherine Ovenden. Catherine contacted me via Twitter to tell me about her campaign to stop Hampshire Council closing all of the Sure Start centres. And those centres offer services and support to so many families and many of them are being closed down because of cuts. Well, actually, I don't know why I'm telling you. I'll let Catherine tell you herself. My name is Catherine Ovenden. I live in Totten in Hampshire and I'm fighting to save our local Sure Start Children's Centres Hampshire County Council want to cut £8.5 million out of the funding for children's services in Hampshire and this means that they'll be closing all of our Sure Start centres. They'll be opening 11 hubs which they say will be an integrated service for families uh, but what they are actually doing is making it impossible for families to get to the hubs because not everybody has a car. Um, if there is a bus service not everyone can afford the bus. 
and they're making the Sure Start service inaccessible to our families. So we are fighting very, very hard to keep all of our Sure Start centres open. We believe that early intervention for families um, will help with tackling problems and it will save money and save lives and support families to do the best that they can by their children and be the best members of their community that they can. Um, sure Start's really important for changing aspirations in young people and we will keep fighting to keep them open. Um, we're especially cross that Hampshire County Council have said there's no money for these frontline services yet they're spending £10,000 on a street party for the lovely people of Winchester to celebrate the Queen's 90th birthday. So we are very angry about that, and I've written to the Queen today to ask her what she thinks. So that's all about our campaign. You can follow us at SOCC Hampshire on Facebook or SOCC Hampshire on Twitter, and we are Big Sock Society. Thank you. So yeah, that's awful, right? But Catherine has been doing a great job protesting about the cuts with Save Our Children Centres Hampshire and she's recently been on Sunday Politics South and various radio shows talking all about her campaign. Now, it's also been recently announced that Hampshire Council are going to be spending 30 grand on a street party in Winchester for the Queen's 90th birthday. And 10 grand of that is going to be from taxpayers' money. Now, let's be honest, the Queen probably isn't even going to bother to attend, which is quite rude of her, and parties outdoors in the British weather probably aren't the best idea for a 90-year-old anyway. I mean, I always assume that with two birthdays a year, the Queen was 180 this year. Is that not, is that not how it works? Oh, OK. Well, all right. Anyway, this, I understand, is happening in a lot of UK boroughs, uh, Queen's parties being paid for by taxpayers' money, whether they've been asked or not, and it's something that I do aim to talk about properly in a future episode. But for now... I thought that it might be a good idea to save Hampshire Council money on their street party for the Queen so that they can use it to save the Sure Start centres instead. So I bought some paper party plates and some princess balloons, though they say princess balloons, I crossed out princess and I wrote the Queen on them because they've got little crowns. No one will know the difference. And I'm sending the whole lot to Dr Julian Lewis, the MP for New Forest East in Hampshire, and to councillors Keith Manns and Roy Perry at the Hampshire County Council. I'm going to be popping that in the post this week and I'll put pictures up on the Twitter and Facebook pages uh, and it contains a little message saying to them, hey, don't spend all that money on the party, I've helped you out. Instead, use it to help children and families that really, really need it. If you'd like to send them some crappy party wear as well, then why not join me? Uh, please don't spend very much money at all. I spent about a quid on all this rubbish from the pound store uh, and all you need to do is address it to Dr Julian Lewis MP at the House of Commons or like I did uh, send it to Hampshire County Council care of Councillor Keith Manns or Councillor Ron Perry. Or heck why not just send it to both or all of them and those at Hampshire are at the Castle Winchester SO23 8UJ. And add a little message as to why you think money should be spent on the sure start rather than a piss up for someone who can really afford her own party. Uh, if you do do this, I should say, please don't be rude or offensive. I think we can help this protest by just having a little bit of fun with it. Also, Dr Julian Lewis MP refuses to use email, which probably because like many Conservative MPs, he's actually trapped in the past. But hopefully it means that he really, really likes getting post. So it would be great if a lot of you decided to send him a little party gift. Please do send pictures of anything you're sending to our at Parpolbro Twitter account or Parpolbro Facebook with the hashtag PartlyBigSociety and I will RT them all. It's just such a nice idea to see them getting party poppers and paper plates and maybe Spider-Man tablecloths all for the Queen. 
You can find Catherine on Twitter at Covenden underscore photo and on Facebook at SOCC Hampshire. I understand she's going to actually be protesting at the Queen's Street Party too, so if you can join her, do. I'd like to make this a weekly thing, so if you have a local cause or something you think that this show could help with, then please do get in touch and hopefully we can start annoying MPs into making some changes. Or at least make sure their street party has really, really crappy balloons. That's all for this week's episode. Hopefully next week's show will be mostly budget-based. Well, I say hopefully. Hopefully George Osborne will open his little red briefcase and then like in that end scene from the Raids of the Lost Ark, all this swirling stuff and ghosts will appear and his entire face will melt. And then I can spend next week's show just discussing how you spell cash, which is short for casual. Think about it. How is it spelled? I don't know. Very upsetting. So, fingers crossed on at least one of those possibilities occurring. Again, please review us on iTunes, do subscribe, and please do spread the word about this show if you enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, I'm really impressed that you got through to this end bit anyway. I mean, you must really, really hate yourself. Do email us with your thoughts, feelings, or weird dreams you had about juggling with spiders while a fireman shouted at you. Thanks, cheese that I ate on Sunday night. Again, at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Parpolbro and Facebook at Parpolbro2, because I'm unoriginal. This week's episode was sponsored by the Home Office and so brought to you by all your security numbers and your very secret letters. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.